Psalm 130. Later on, we're going to be in Luke 15, but we'll start and uh, we'll go all the way through Psalm 130 tonight. Well, don't answer out loud, but when you hear the name King David, what comes to mind? On the encouraging side, um, David the psalmist, David the giant slayer, probably the most wonderful word spoken about David, David, a man after God's own heart. On the more infamous side of those words, King David, David the murderer, David the adulterer, and David the great abuser of power. And like the Apostle Peter in the New Testament, David is a guy that we can resonate a little bit with because he loved the Lord with all his heart, but he blew it big time, didn't he? And I'm sure you're all familiar with his most infamous fall. He wanted Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, so he uses his authority to take her. He used that same authority as king to have Uriah killed. In Psalm 51, which we read in our scripture reading, David records his repentance over that sin, and we'll come back to that later. And while we don't know if Psalm 130 is directly related to that situation, it's also a psalm of repentance written by David. In eight short verses, David goes from the depths of depression to the hope of redemption. So let's begin with him in the depths and follow him through to hope, amen? So Psalm 130, we're gonna read all eight verses and then we'll dive in. David says, out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So in verse one, David says, out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. The depths. Several words could work here. Despair, sorrow, depression, disappointment, discouragement. In any case, David's at a very low point in his life, and so he cries out to the Lord. And we know that the motivation for this psalm and the reason that David was in the depths was his sin, and we're gonna talk about that in a bit. But before we do that, it's good for us to know and remember that we can cry out to God from wherever we're at, from any, uh, whatever the situation, for any reason, we can cry out to the Lord. In Psalm 18, David had been in the depths because of his enemies, and he cried out to the Lord. Psalm 18, uh, verses four to six, the pangs of death surrounded me, and the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord, I cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple, and my cry came before him, even to his ears. In Psalm 34, David was tormented by fear, so he cries out in verses four and six, I sought the Lord and he heard me, and he delivered me from all my fears. This poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Then there are the times when life is just the pits and Psalm 88, though it's not written by David, it says in several verses here, O Lord, God of my salvation, I have cried out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of trouble. And my life draws near to the grave. I'm counted with those who go down to the pit. 
I'm like a man who has no strength, adrift among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, who you remember no more, and who are cut off from your hand. My eye wastes away because of affliction. Lord, I've called daily upon you. I've stretched out my hands to you. To you I've cried out, O Lord. And in the morning my prayer comes before you. So whether it's fear or sadness or depression, enemies, loss of a loved one, sin, or just the pits, wherever the depths are for you, from that place you can cry out to the Lord, even tonight. There is no place that your discouragement can take you as a believer, as his child, where his presence through his spirit will not be near to you. David said in Psalm 139, verses seven and eight, where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. And I know that here at Calvary Chapel, there are quite a few who may have found themselves in the depths in 2020. In our own congregation, there are even now some who are discouraged, stemming from the isolation of COVID-19. We have some who have been diagnosed with life-threatening sickness. Many have lost their jobs. Recently, we've had a couple of families lose loved ones and others whose children have gone astray. And like David, there may be some who find themselves in the depths because of sin, either their own or someone else's. All of these things can bring us to a place of great sadness, the depths. And I wanna say to you that no matter what has brought you to that place or whatever brings you to that place, you can cry out to God. Wherever you're at, whatever you're dealing with, you can still draw near to God, as James 4, 8 says, and he will draw near to you. And actually that promise of our Lord drawing near when we draw near to him was spoken to those who'd sinned. James 4, 8 is a call to repentance. When we sin, when our hearts have rebelled, when we don't want the Lord, his desire is not to give up on you, but to have you draw near to him in repentance. And as we'll see in our text tonight, God is faithful. He will meet you at that place from which you cry out to him. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Verse two, Lord, hear my voice. Let my ears be attentive to the voice, excuse me, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. So David's asking the Lord to hear him and to be attentive to him. And I think it's obvious that David knows that the Lord hears him, otherwise who's he saying this to? Also we know that God is aware of our every thought before we speak it. It was David who said in Psalm 139 verses two through four, you understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path, my lying down and you're acquainted with all my ways, for there's not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. So when he asked the Lord to hear and be attentive to him, he's not trying to get the attention of a distracted God. The word for hear means to give consent to, to regard or to consider. It's the same word used for hear in Psalm 66, 18, where it says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. It's not that the God doesn't actually hear us when we're harboring willful sin in our hearts, but he doesn't consent to our prayer. He doesn't consider our prayers if we refuse to deal with our sin. It's the same idea in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, where Peter addresses the husband's attitude towards his wife. Peter says, Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of God, that your prayers may not be hindered. So if we're not honoring our wife, our prayers can be hindered, and that word means to frustrate or cut down. Again, it's not that the Lord doesn't hear, but our prayer life is frustrated, and as a result, we can expect to see little or no fruit in prayer. So, it's first things first. First, if we're living in sin, 
We need to deal with that sin before God, and then he considers our prayer. That's what David did. It was his sin that brought him to the depths, and now he's dealing with it. Have you ever journeyed to the depths because of your sin? Well, you're in good company. David had been there a few times. Psalm 6, verses 1 and 3 to 3, he prayed, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I'm weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. Has your sin ever brought you to that place where you could feel it in your bones? Me too. Also, Psalm 32, verses three and four, David prayed concerning his sin. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Have you ever remained silent about some particular sin to the point where you felt completely dried up spiritually? That dryness is just a consequence of sin because the Lord loves you. And here in Psalm 130, David is dealing with the consequences of his sin. He was in the depths, and from that place in Psalm 130, David asked the Lord to hear him. Then he begins to appeal to God's great mercy, mercy expressed in not marking his sin. He says in verse three, if you, Lord, should mark iniquity, oh, Lord, who could stand? The word translated mark here, it means to preserve, to take heed to, to observe or reserve. So David's asking a question of the Lord to which he already knows the answer. If the Lord took heed to our sin or if he were to hold it in reserve to use against us at a later date, who could stand that? And of course the answer is none of us could take it, right? You know, there's at least one individual who wants you to believe that God is reserving your sin to hold against you. His name is Satan. He and his minions specialize in guilt and condemnation of believers. The last part of Revelation 12, verse 10 says of him that he is the accuser of our brethren who accused them before God day and night. He knows that one of the easiest ways to render us ineffective for the Lord is to get us to buy into guilt over sin for which we've already repented. And he'll use every means at his disposal to make sure that your sin is marked and not forgotten. He'll use your enemies to mock you when you fall. Sadly, he'll use other believers to gossip about you when you fall. He'll even use loved ones who you may have hurt or sinned against, and though you've repented, they don't let it go. They mark it to use against you. Perhaps you've done that yourself. Oh, but if he can get us to believe that God Almighty is holding our sin against us or that the Lord is holding our failures in reserve to throw in our faces another day, we couldn't endure that. This is why we must deal with our sin in God's prescribed manner and we must receive his mercy. Proverbs 28, 13, he who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Did you know that God takes pleasure in you when you hope in his mercy? One of my favorite verses, Psalm 147, 11 says, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his mercy. Let that scripture penetrate your heart that you might learn to run to him for his mercy and not hide when you fall. God is pleased God experiences pleasure when you hope in his mercy. In other words, when you sin and you need that mercy, he doesn't take pleasure in you doing something to make up for it. Doesn't give him any pleasure. He doesn't ask you to do that. He doesn't require you to do that. You know, you're not having to appease an angry God. And we see that in Psalm 51, which we read earlier. Uh, David's dealing with his sin with Bathsheba and, and, and Uriah. 
And he says in repentance of that sin in verse 16 and 17, for you don't desire sacrifice or else I'd give it. I'd do something. You don't delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, oh God, you will not despise. Family, when you've sinned, God wants your broken heart because he takes pleasure in you when you trust only in his mercy when you're in that condition. I can say that as a dad, that among my most wonderful memories of my children are the times when they repented, the times when they were sorrowful over their sin and they trusted in our love as parents. Those memories bring me as a dad great pleasure to this day. And so it is with your heavenly father. When you trust his mercy, you please the Lord. May you find comfort in his mercy knowing that he does not mark your sin against you. If you're a believer, if you've received Jesus as your Lord and confessed your sin to him, he forgives you. He does not reserve your failing to condemn you now or in the future. One last thought on that. If you recall, we're given a measure of the amount of condemnation God places on us in Romans chapter eight. How much condemnation Does God place on those who have come to him for salvation? There is therefore now no condemnation. You are forgiven tonight. David points that out in verse four. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. What an interesting thing. Forgiveness that you may be feared. That's that awe and that reverence for God. Well, there are a number of things spoken of in scripture that produce this sense of awe, this holy reverence for God. Here are just a couple his judgments inspire fear. Revelation 14, seven says, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. His holiness also inspires fear. Revelation 15, four, you shall, who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name for you alone are holy. And here in Psalm 130, verse four, we're told that his forgiveness should inspire a fear and an awe for him. Verse four again, but there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. So how does forgiveness inspire fear? Well, let's look at the cost of that forgiveness. In Isaiah 53, you don't have to turn there. In fact, just let it minister to you when I read it. You're very familiar with Isaiah 53, but may you hear afresh what the Lord did for you in forgiving your sin to bring you into intimacy with himself and may its hearing and receiving evoke an awe, a reverence and a fear of your loving God. Isaiah 53 verses three through 10. For my sin and for yours, Jesus was despised. He was rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, yet we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we didn't esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions and he was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep had gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, all of us. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken and they made his grave with the wicked 
but with the rich at his death because he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. It pleased the Father to bruise Jesus for you. The Father put Jesus to grief for you. The Father made Jesus, his very soul, an offering for your sin and for mine. This should be, perhaps, the most significant motivation for complete awe and reverence of our God. In that sacrifice of his son, we see the great love that he's loved us with. And we behold the lengths to which he went to redeem us and to extend forgiveness to us. And John writes in 1 John 3, 1, that we are to behold what manner of love that the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. If you're lacking an awe for God, could it be that you've not beheld the cross recently and considered what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon you? I would encourage you to spend some time meditating on Isaiah 53 if you haven't done so in a while. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Verse five, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I do hope. So David began the psalm in despair, asking the Lord to consider his prayer. He acknowledged that his sin is what put him in that place. He received God's forgiveness, and now he waits on the Lord, and he hopes in his word. Waiting and hope, they go together like grace and peace and mercy and truth in the scripture. In regard to waiting, you know, our world is fast-paced as it is, even with COVID, provides a lot of opportunity to wait. We wait at red lights, checkout lines. We wait uh, for work to be over. We wait for school to be over. We wait for 2020 to be over. Um, we wait and we wait and we wait some more. And for the most part, nobody really likes to wait, but here in God's word, David says that his soul waits for the Lord. And therein is David's inspiration to wait because it was his loving, merciful, compassionate Lord whom he was waiting for. So he has great hope and expectation in that waiting. In fact, there would be no reason to wait on the Lord if there was no hope or expectation. Waiting always involves, always always, always, always involves some level of expectation. And for David in verse five, his hope or his expectation was in the word of God. Verse five again, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I do hope. David expected God to keep his word, so he waits. Do you expect God to keep his word to you? The answer to that question can determine the state of your heart in 2021 the state of your heart tonight. Do you expect the Lord to keep his word? The value that we place on waiting as well as our ability to wait patiently are determined by our hope and our expectation. That expectation being, what do I expect as a result of the waiting? For example, if I need a gallon of milk and I walk into the grocery store noticing that each checkout line is 15 customers deep and everything's stacked at the top, well, I'd probably turn around and leave the milk, right? the need for the milk wouldn't be worth the wait. But there are many things that are worth waiting for. It's worth it to wait at a red light for it to turn green. Not waiting could result in your death or someone else's, or at least a ticket. It's worth it for a young man and young woman to remain sexually pure. Not waiting in that case can result in all kinds of hurt, to say the least. And so too, waiting on the Lord, waiting on the Lord's word, as David does here in verse five, is worth the wait. Why? Why? Because biblical hope 
is having certainty of expectation that our God will keep his word. Psalm 62, five, my soul wait patiently for God alone for my expectation is from him. I can and should expect God to come through. Jeremiah 29, 11, I'm sure you all have it memorized. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And the King James translates that to give you an expected end. That's what hope is. It's having an expectation that's certain. Biblical hope is in God's word is knowing that everything God has promised, he'll also do. Here are just a few things for which when you wait on the Lord, you can have the hope or the expectation of receiving from him. If you need strength of heart, Psalm 27, 14 says, wait on the Lord and be of good courage and he will strengthen your heart. He will. That is your certain expectation. If you feel on the verge of compromising your integrity, Psalm 25, 21 says, let integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. Put another way, Lord, I choose to wait on you. My desire is to be faithful. Strengthen me to walk in integrity. If you're tired or worn out, one of everybody's favorites, Isaiah 40, 31. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. If you're God's child, these are his promises to you, his word to you. They're not simply nice sayings, nor are they intended to make you just feel better. They're promises from your God who cannot lie. Titus 1, 2. They're promises from your Father who loves you, John three sixteen, and everything from Genesis to Revelation. So when you read these words, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. When you read those words, you can know that your God will deliver. You will find new strength. You will. You can expect with absolute certainty that his word to you will come to pass. The only question is, will you wait on the Lord? trusting that what he says he will do, he will do. He makes it so easy, doesn't he? One more thought or footnote on this and then we'll move on to verse six. The fact that Isaiah tells us in chapter 40, verse 31, to wait on the Lord so that we might renew our strength rightly assumes that sometimes we do become weak and weary. And actually the previous verse, verse 30 says, even the youths shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall but those who wait on the Lord, aha, now they shall renew their strength. So if that's where you're at tonight, or if you should find yourself there at some point, continue to wait on the Lord. There isn't another answer. Wait on the Lord. Lean into his promises and speak, or the ones that speak to your need, meditate on them, pray his promises, and wait. Because the Lord also said through Isaiah chapter 49, the last part of verse 23, for they shall not be disappointed who wait on me. Isn't that wonderful? Those are your loving Lord's words for you. Wait on me. You will not be disappointed. Now in verse six, David adds emphasis to the fact that uh, waiting is all about what we expect. And we've talked a lot about that, so we're just gonna cover that quickly here. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. So David here uses the example of a night watchman. For the watchman, the one who's guarding the city, nights can seem endless. But the watchman was waiting for something that was certain. He waited for and looked for the morning. The rising of the sun wasn't an uncertainty. 
It would happen like clockwork. The watchman knew it would come to pass. And David says that he waits for the Lord with more expectation than a weary watchman waits for that certainty of the rising sun. Just as the watchman knows that the sunrise is certain, David knew that waiting on the Lord came with certain expectation. And may that be so with us. Verse seven, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy and with him is abundant redemption. So David is calling God's people Israel to hope in the Lord and the Lord is calling us through David to do the same, which we just looked at. In verse seven though, the stimulus given for this hope is that with the Lord there is mercy and redemption. Verse seven again, O Israel, hope in the Lord. Why? For with the Lord there is mercy and with him is abundant redemption. Mercy, God's great compassion, his loving forgiveness. And we've talked a bit about mercy already, but let's look at God's mercy in action one more time. Other than the cross, probably the greatest display of God's mercy is found in the story of the prodigal son. Please turn to Luke 15, if you will. Luke 15, save Psalm 130, we'll come back there to close out. We all know the story, the younger of two sons, he decides he wants to venture out into the world, so he asks his dad for the inheritance, and after his persistence, the father releases him and lets him go with his inheritance. Well, the son ends up blowing everything on what the Bible calls riotous living, and eventually he ends up eating pig slop to sustain himself. After he hits bottom, his money's gone, there's a famine in the land, and he comes to his senses, and we're going to pick it up in verse 17 of chapter 15. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will rise, and I'll go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm not worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to marry, make merry. Notice in verse 20 that the father makes no mention of the boy's past. Not a word about where he's been or what he's done. It says there in verse 20, and he arose and came to his father But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion on him, ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. No questions like, well, where were you? What have you done? Where's my money? You know, your brother has been working really hard these past several years here. No questions like that, why? Because this father's mercy for his child is sufficient to cover any sin he had been involved in, just like your heavenly father's mercy is sufficient to cover any sin that you've been involved in or are in right now. Verse 20 also shows that the father doesn't wait to see what the boy's attitude is before he runs to him. For all this earthly father knew, at this point the boy could have been returning for more money, but there's no examination from dad. Verse 20 says, when he was still a great way off, his father saw him. And that brought the compassion. Just seeing his son come back. 
All that father needed was to see his lost child coming in the direction of home, and he runs to him because his heart is full of compassion. Then finally, the boy speaks words of repentance to the father. Again, this is after dad has already had the compassion. He's already run. He's already fell on him. He's already kissed him. Then after that, the boy says, you know, he's rehearsed, right? So he's just rehearsing what he said. Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Could you imagine that thought? I am no longer worthy to be your child, dad. You may have had that thought before after you've sinned. But what does your father do? But the father said to the servants, still no words to the child. The next thing we see, dad, you know, the child repents as the father uh, has brought him home to a feast. And, you know, this one who had believed that he was no longer worthy to be considered a child, he's getting a feast. Doesn't all of this speak of God's incredible mercy and abundant redemption? Not just forgiveness, but the instant mercy and the abundant redemption he lavishes on us when we but move towards him. So a couple of questions. Is there anything for which you need to repent of tonight? Is there anything or anyone here backsliding under the radar? If you are in either one of those categories, your Savior is waiting for you to take one step back. With the Lord, there is mercy and abundant redemption. Please turn back to Psalm 130 now. Verse seven and eight together. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. As David wrote this psalm, he looked forward to a time when Messiah would come and redeem Israel. And we look back at this and we see that God is faithful. He sent Jesus to redeem not only Israel, but he died for the sin of the whole world, 1 John 2.2 2 says. And this redemption is abundant, and it's available, as Acts 2.21 says, to whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord. So as we begin to wrap up our thoughts tonight, we're gonna recap a bit and then make some more application. In this psalm, David gives us an outline of repentance and restoration. He began by crying out to God from the depths. He asked the Lord to consider his prayer, He remembered that the Lord doesn't mark sin, but God forgives. He waited on the Lord and he hoped in his word and he found mercy and he found abundant redemption. As we looked at when we began, the sin for which David is most remembered was pretty horrific. First of all, David so greatly abused the authority that God had given him and the Lord had given David that authority because he loved his people and he wanted David to love his people, to shepherd them. David also committed adultery with a loyal soldier's wife. She gets pregnant. So in order to cover up his sin, he has this warrior, her husband Uriah, come home from war hoping that he'll have relations with Bathsheba so that all would believe that she was pregnant by her husband. David was scheming, King David was scheming so as to never repent of his sin in hopes of hiding it for the rest of his life. But Uriah refuses to go to his wife because he's a man of great character. All he can think about is that he belongs with his fellow soldiers fighting for God's people and David, his beloved king. Second Samuel 11, verse 11 says, and Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel are, and Judah are dwelling in tents and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I go to my house and eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live, as your soul lives, David, I won't do this thing. So David writes a letter to Joab, and this is what it says. Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle, 
and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. Now what makes this even more scandalous than just the murder is that David delivered this message to Joab in Uriah's own hand. 2 Samuel eleven fourteen says, in the morning it happened that David wrote the letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. So it's not enough that David writes a message to have Uriah killed, an upright and loyal man, but killed to hide his own sin. But David was able to take that letter and actually have the man he would murder unwittingly deliver his own death sentence. If you had seen this in a movie or you knew of someone personally who did this, you'd probably hate that guy. You'd at least struggle with that thought. But God loved David, just like he loves you. Because truly with God, there is forgiveness and abundant redemption. So another question, if you knew someone who was a believer who had sinned in this way, maybe even against you or your own family, and they were to walk in here tonight, do you think you might struggle a little bit with them, even if you knew they had claimed to have repented? Or maybe we might be tempted to declare, as did, uh, David did to Nathan, surely that man must die. Well, the Lord doesn't have that problem. The Lord is able to completely forgive David because his word says in Psalm 103, verse 10 through 12, he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Micah seven nineteen, you will cast all, you will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. That's what God does with your sin. So I wonder, what have you done for which God cannot forgive you? Do you ever struggle with the truth of verse seven? That the Lord with him is mercy and abundant redemption? The Lord tells us through Micah, through David, and through many others that he forgives all of our sin. So if you're thinking that you've sunk to a depth from which the Lord cannot rescue you, it is not the Lord telling you that. No matter who you are or where you've been, you can find forgiveness of sin and relief from any depths in which you find yourself. So I would encourage you tonight, apply Psalm 130 to your life. It says to you, out of your depths, cry out to the Lord. He will hear you. He will not preserve or reserve your sin to hold against you in any way. Stand in awe of his forgiveness and let your hope or expectation be as his word declares it to be. And that is that with God is mercy and abundant redemption and he will redeem you from all of your sin. Amen? Let's all stand. We're gonna have the worship team come. Lord, thank you, Lord, that as Will thought this morning, you became one of us, Lord. Thank you that you know what it's like to struggle with the temptation of this world. Thank you that you say that to us that we're forgiven and, and that you don't reserve or preserve our sin to use against us, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that we can stand because you don't 
reserve our sin to use against us. Lord, you've buried our sin in the deepest sea. Lord, would you help those who struggle with condemnation tonight? Would you help those who somehow think that your mercy is good enough for everybody but them? To know that your mercy is abundant, that your redemption is abundant, Lord, that it's complete. Lord, we commit our hearts to you in the hearing of this word and pray that you would write it on our hearts, the things that your spirit has spoken to us. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your grace and your kindness in Jesus' name. Amen.